Terrence Smith's media career went from the Stanford, Connecticut advocate to the New York Times, then to CBS News, and he finished at the PBS NewsHour in 2005. In his short memoir of his working life, titled Four Wars and Five Presidents, Terrence Smith writes, There is a great deal of hand-wringing these days about the news business. Young people don't read, don't know anything beyond what they see on their screens, and don't see the value of independent knowledge as long as they have Google and can look it up. The sky, we are told, is falling. More about this and many other things from Mr. Smith next. Terry Smith, when I read your memoir, the biggest smile came to my face when you started talking about the McCourt brothers. What's that? <laughs> what's that yeah. story? Oh, well, that was so wonderful. Uh, uh, Frank McCourt uh, published, of course, the great big hit, Angela's Ashes, which was uh, number one selling book for a long time. And he and his uh, brothers, uh, Malachi and Alfie, um, are three, were three of the funniest people I've ever known. And um, Alfie uh, and Frank, unfortunately, have gone to the Irish pub in the sky. But uh, Malachi is still with us in New York and quite a character. Anyway, the story was, I saw an excerpt of his uh, then-new memoir called Angela's Ashes in The New Yorker, and I just loved it. And uh, I proposed to CBS Sunday Morning, the broadcast that I was working for then, um, that we go with uh, the three uh, McCourt brothers who were headed to Ireland shortly, to go literally scatter Angela's ashes, their mother's uh, remains, in a um, in a cemetery in Limerick, Ireland, and so we took off on what proved to be a ten day romp, uh, starting actually in London, and then Dublin, where Frank uh, charmed audiences uh, in the book bookstores, and then on to Limerick, uh, which was their stamping grounds and it and they were so wonderfully funny and irreverent uh i'm sure they loved their mother angela very much but they were just as irreverent as they could be even uh, in the cemetery and um it made a uh, it made a lyrical piece frankly for uh cbs sunday morning maybe 10 11 minutes long and uh i remember interviewing uh, Frank, for the principal interview in uh, a pub, of course, in Limerick, uh, before opening hours. And um, he said to me about the book, he said, I would have died if I didn't get this out, if I wasn't able to uh, write this and express and tell these stories of growing up poor in a limerick in the lanes, as they called it, the slums of Limerick, Ireland, and coming on to the United States and all that it represented. And it's just a wonderful tale. I have a little bit of a sound bite here of Frank McCourt. We're going to run it and then get you to follow up on what he says. Okay. 
you can go into the church and make a general confession. I, I just say I confess. But in my time, you had to go in and detail your sins, which, which kept us all in a state of terror. Because, you know, an adolescent boy is constantly finding himself irresistible. And that's, that's the sin of impurity. And that was one of the big boy, one of the big sins in Limerick. So I think I was in a constant state of impurity and terror of the priest. <laughs> so it reached a point one time where the priest didn't believe that I was in a proper state of repentance and told me, get out of this confession box and don't come back till you're truly sorry. And I walked out of there, I felt I was doomed. If I'm hit by a truck now, that's it. Eternity in flames. I probably shouldn't connect the two, but you were a Notre Dame graduate, so I assume you have been in that confessional once or twice in your life. Yes, of course I had. I am a Notre Dame graduate. Uh, but Frank, I mean, uh, the church was huge for him, and yet he was very irreverent about it and terribly funny uh, as he talked about it. He was not uh, particularly observant Catholic, but of course he was born and raised in the church that dominated Ireland in those days. One other clip I want to run is because it's you mentioned this subject several times in your book, and uh, it's another Frank McCourt uh, clip. It's just about a, mm-hmm. about a minute. Here we go. Another characteristic of the Irish, which I thought was disappearing, was the drink. That's how it's referred to. The drink. Not drink, not alcohol. The drink. And when I was there last week, I noticed it. It, it's still, it's still, uh, the swilling that goes on is unbelievable. And I don't know where they get the money. It's a booming economy, so. But it, it's always, they always seem to have the money for the drink. And it's destroyed so many people, so many families. What is it about the Irish and the drink? Why in that little I country? I think, I've, I've tried to figure that out. There was nothing else. In, in, a, country, in a country that was completely uncluttered, uh, there was, po- there's plenty of poetry, song, uh, love of the of, of the landscape of nature and of women Be, pe- back that that love poetry died for a long time in Ireland, but uh, uh, in recent times, as a, the, the, after 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 the famine, I think something happened to the Irish soul. Terry Smith, uh, you mentioned many times pubs, uh, you mentioned bars. Journalists all getting together. Did alcohol and all of your reporting life with the Times and CBS and PBS NewsHour, did it ever get in the way? Um, I hope not, and I don't think so. Uh, For me, uh, it got in the way for a lot of people, as you probably well know, and uh, I'm sure it still does. Uh, But I love your selection of clips from that interview with McCourt is terrific because just that one shows how Frank had, um, he thought about these things. He thought about the drink. He thought about, as he called it, the drink. And he thought about uh, what impact it had on Ireland and Irish society. And yet he didn't do it with a, um, you know, a missionary's zeal at all. Uh, Frank, um, told everyone that his father was an alcoholic and uh, often uh, deserted the family. And as he would say, uh, you know, sitting by the fire with the mo- with his mother moaning and and so forth. It, it there were grim moments 
uh, and the drink had something to do with it. So that, that I think is very reflective of him. But in in journalism, you're absolutely right, Brian. It's uh, is it a little more frequent than um, uh, stockbrokers? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, stockbrokers probably drink a better a better brand, but uh, and a more expensive one. But uh, it certainly it's it's part of the culture, and it was. And uh, I found as a young person on the New York Herald Tribune going down to Blake's, the so-called artists and writers restaurant, located under the office, wonderful evenings with characters like Walt Kelly, the who drew uh, Pogo, the enormously popular strip, and and people like that at the bar. Uh, playing, uh, playing the match game, and and uh, Jimmy Breslin telling his latest stories out of uh, the Queen's courthouse. It was um, for me, a young reporter just breaking in. It was uh, pretty romantic. What uh, what got into you to do a memoir many years after you retired from the News Hour? Well, it, to be honest, it was. Um, uh, getting it out finally was a bit of a COVID creation uh, where I had several speaking engagements and other things canceled. Um, and I suddenly had a lot of time and no more excuses. I had started uh, writing the memoir and writing the, some of these old stories at the inspiration of a college uh, classmate. Uh, he and his wife, both PhDs and both uh, authors, um, and I were on my sailboat, Winsome, at anchor in the eastern shore one evening, and there may have been a certain amount of wine uh, consumed, and we're telling these old stories. And they said, why don't you write these down? This is great stuff. And I sort of brushed it off and didn't pay much attention. But then eventually I thought, why not? Let's put it down. I dedicate the memoir to my three granddaughters, Scout, Sailor, and Neva. And, uh, and I, as I wrote, I was sort of thinking, uh, this, they'll read about this when they're older. It's a bit much for them now. They're only, um, uh, what are they now? They're 11, 12 and 13 respectively. So, um, uh, but I, I guess I had them in mind as I wrote it. And, uh, with COVID, I had no excuse, but to finish it and, find an agent and publish it. And amazingly, uh, it's it's sold reasonably well for a memoir. I mean, journalistic memoirs are tough but uh, in, in this world, but uh, it has moved better than I thought. I want to, there's a lot to talk about, but I want to get the overview from you about the 1967 war in Israel. Um, I looked up mm -hmm. the figures today, and the United States has given to Israel at least $150 billion since 1948. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And I right. want to know from you, has that been worth it? But how did that 67 war come about, and where were you during that process? Well, I had just arrived uh, 10 days before the so-called Six-Day War in 1967 between Israel and her Arab neighbors. Uh, I had just arrived in Jerusalem 
as a uh, utterly green foreign correspondent on his first overseas assignment. I was going to take over the bureau in Jerusalem for the New York Times, for which I'd worked for several years. And I'd always wanted to go overseas. This was my ambition. So uh, I was there uh, just a few days before the war and then uh, covered the battle for Jerusalem, which was an epic event and tale in which um, Israeli forces encircled and and took uh, East Jerusalem, the former Jordanian section. And it was history in the making. I mean, here was the first time that Israelis had been able to visit the religious sites in the in the eastern uh, half of the city in in uh, 19 years, and it was the first time Jews had controlled all of Jerusalem, according to its history, in 2,000 years. So it was quite the moment. Well, that- and for a new young correspondent to cover a story like that, and the taking of the West Bank and the rest of the war, that that was remarkable. Well, at the time, as you know, um, Israel only had 2.7 million people in it, Egypt 32 million, Mm -hmm. Jordan 1.3, and Syria 5.7. They surround Israel. What started the war? The war came about uh, uh, with, you know, considerable provocation from Egypt, where President uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser provoked uh, the Israelis by closing the strait, the Straits of Tehran, which are Israel's access to the Red Sea, and by uh, dismissing U.N. observers from the Gaza Strip and a lot of bellicose rhetoric. Uh, so the Israelis, who were badly outnumbered, um, but very powerful in their own way, uh, they they realized that this was going to come to war. So the military, uh, led in those days by uh, the late Yitzhak Rabin and Moshe Dayan, persuaded the political leadership in Israel to uh, launch a preemptive strike to um, attack Egypt primarily and destroy their air force on the ground on the morning of June 5th. 1967. And um, it was successful beyond their imagination, I think. And uh, ultimately, they won the war and captured uh, uh, vast amounts of real estate in the Sinai and the Golan Heights and and um, the West Bank. And what's, what's the irony is that uh, in the decades since, um, Although Israel returned the Sinai and part of the Golan Heights, um, much of it is still the same today, uh, 50-odd years later, as it was then. And you talk about the American role the, um, and the money, uh, 3 to $4 billion a year, uh, when, when uh, as who was it, Everett Dirksen said, that's real money. Uh, that that of course financed uh, much of the settlement and uh, development of Israel from the beginning, from 1948. So and so, 
It, it, it was a major factor. There's no question about it. So the war starts on the 5th of June. What do you do? Well, I I woke up, as I write, I woke up uh, uh, that morning very early uh, with a, uh, uh, a phone call from a colleague telling me the war had begun. And I, quite frankly, a hangover from a wonderful party the night before, because the day before, on June 4th, Moshe Dayan, then the defense minister of Israel, uh, had a press conference, and he said Israel was going to give uh, diplomacy more time to uh, settle this dispute with her Arab neighbors. Well, you know, I learned a lesson, and uh, I'd say to anyone, uh, whenever you hear a military leader say that, they're going to give diplomacy more time, and especially an Israeli, then I would recommend that you go to the bomb shelters right away, because... Uh, it, uh, it obviously he had no such intention, and they launched the war at dawn the next day. Egypt, Jordan. I covered the battle for Jerusalem, basically. Uh, from that moment on, literally jumping out of bed and filing a story uh, that fighting had begun uh, not only in the Sinai but on the Jordanian front, and uh covering it uh, minute by minute from that point on. It was all very new to me, but uh, in situations like that, you learn fast, and you have to learn fast. And so um, I did. And it was uh, it was thrilling, uh, and yet I'm struck by the difference. In those days, you were writing for the New York Times, you were filing a story, once every 24 hours, 7 p.m. New York time was your deadline, and you filed a story um, about the events of the day. You might update it a little for subsequent editions, but that was basically it. Today, of course, you would be covering it minute by minute online, on social media, on Twitter, and probably Facebook. You'd be on the air You'd be taking vi and transmitting video. You'd be doing so much, 24 hours a day. It, it, um, it's an amazing difference that is both technological and, uh, and editorial. It makes a difference. But it's, it strikes me how, how much the uh, technology and the journalism has changed, but how little the facts on the ground, particularly involving the Palestinian Israel and the Palestinians, Israel has never been able to convert their victories, plural, into peace uh, and some kind of coexistence or harmony with the Palestinians. Uh, you can it's it's a long answer as to why, but uh, and there, I'm sure there's responsibility on both sides. But uh, it, it is just a fact that uh, the lines along the West Bank and between pre-1967 Israel and, and today are just what they were then at the end of the Six-Day War. As you know, the 1973 war in Israel um, was another major 
uh, event and subsequent to that, the 1978 agreement where we have now given Egypt $80 billion since then. Are we getting our mm-hmm. money's worth? And I'd also like to have you to talk about the 73 war and what was the importance of that one and were you there? Right. The, you, your definition of the money and getting your money's worth for something like this is very hard and very individual and very much in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, that huge uh, uh, annual uh, donation to, not donation, uh, appropriation to Egypt uh, was partly in a result of here we are giving three, four billion dollars a year to Israel. Uh, this, you know, there was some sense of justice and equity in, in providing very substantial assistance to Egypt, which certainly needed it and was growing and is now more than 100 million people, um, as Israel has grown to be about 9 million. So um, the, the money is, is uh, one aspect to it. The 1973 war, again, that did surprise Israel, and it surprised me. I was, I had gone on from my initial assignment in Israel to cover the Vietnam War, and uh, and now was back in Jerusalem for a full-term assignment, which for the times in those days and today was considered to be about four years. Uh, and I had just arrived back um, the year before, 1972, and was covering Israel, and tensions were building, and we knew that. But in October of 1973, um, even though Israel had a highly placed spy in the uh, son-in-law of the late President Nasser, uh, who told them that the war was uh, imminent and going to develop, and that is, and that Egypt was going to attack across the Suez Canal? Uh, the Israelis didn't believe it. They had a a certain, they will say, and admit arrogance after the 1967 victory, which had been so total and so complete and remarkable, they, they, they were pretty cocky about their ability to uh, fend off their Arab neighbors. And even when they were getting this uh, intelligence from a very highly placed spy, uh, they didn't take it all that seriously. And therefore, it came as something of a surprise on the morning uh, that the spy had indicated, actually the afternoon, um, when Egyptian troops poured across the Suez Canal and moved into the Sinai, retaking some of it. Um, And it was probably Israel's most perilous moment and uh, probably still ranks as such. And they were caught uh, if not unprepared, then at least semi-prepared for full-scale war involving Egypt and uh, and Syria and other other Arab forces. So it it um, it was a remarkable event, totally different from the Six Day War in 1967, and it too 
created facts on the ground that ex- that exist to this day. Chapter 13, I found interesting and wanted you to talk about it. It's the Nixon, Kissinger, William uh, Rogers. Uh, mm-hmm. the, but the reason I wanted you to talk about it is the relationship between Rogers, Secretary of State, and Kissinger, the National Security Advisor in 1971, and you and the the stories that you wrote and the, the reaction from Mr. Kissinger and, and the whole business of who's leaking to whom. Talk about that. Exactly. Exactly right. I mean, I um, uh, was back in Washington as the diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times during the uh, later years of the Nixon presidency. The first of the, that's why I call the, the book Four Wars, Five Presidents a reporter's journey from Jerusalem to Saigon to the White House. And and that's the first of those five presidents was Nixon. I didn't cover the White House. I covered his foreign policy, which included, of course, the State Department. And there was a terrific rivalry between William P. Rogers, Secretary of State, and Henry Kissinger, the brilliant, mercurial, frankly conniving, um, uh, ambitious, National Security Advisor, who later became Secretary of State. He, Kissinger wanted to convince the world, and uh, certainly Nixon, that, that he was the center of uh, American foreign policy, and not Rogers. And that's why um, he, he carried on about it. Um, and I, I wrote some stories that, uh, that uh, Nixon didn't like, and we know this from the from the tapes in uh, the famous Nixon tapes that include a number of passages where Nixon and Kissinger are sitting in the Oval Office, and Nixon is complaining about uh, something I had written that was, like, you know, not very helpful from his point of view about his foreign policy and how it was developing. And uh, Kissinger was anxious to uh, explain that he was not the source of this story that had so annoyed Nixon, that William Rogers, the Secretary of State, was almost surely the source, even though not mentioned, uh, not acknowledged in the article. And so it, it, uh, it it's revealing in two ways it shows you how much time the president nixon and henry kissinger spent talking about their press coverage and uh in the oval office all recorded on tape later released during watergate and how uh possessed they were with their own image and and so forth and there's a there's a little section in the um, in in the tapes, in which um, they talk about uh, a particular article I wrote about their foreign policy, and uh, it so annoyed uh, Nixon, and so Kissinger is desperate to to uh, explain that he was not the source, which of course he partly was, and so here's what it says right out of the tape. Uh, word for word. Kissinger is speaking. He says, first of all, Terrence Smith never calls my staff 
Well, sorry, not true. He has never done it in all the years that we've been here. Doubly not true. Secondly, my staff is on additional instructions not to return any New York Times calls here. Well, that was true, but largely ignored by his staff. And Nixon, still annoyed, says, that's right. So Kissinger says, that's out of the question that he could be the source. Uh, Nixon was just annoyed and, and brushed it off and probably went back to his lunch of cottage cheese with ketchup on it. And um, But it's, I, I found revealing about the petty internal disputes. Uh, the late William Sapphire once said that Kissinger uh, displayed what he called a bombastic triviality. Terry Smith, what's your attitude about revealing sources, especially when you look at the story about Rogers and Kissinger? Uh, Rogers is gone, but Kissinger's still alive. Uh, how do you feel about telling us who dropped this nugget in your lap? Well, uh, in part, it was disclosed by the Nixon tapes, so it's on the record. Uh, William Rogers is, has passed on. Uh, normally, I would not do it. I would not reveal sources, not even long after an article, if it was in dispute. But um, in this case, it um, it is, as I say, revealed partly in the in the Nixon tapes, and uh, it's also fairly obvious if you read the story at the time. Uh, I'm sure I quoted unnamed individuals in the State Department, Rogers State Department. And I uh, probably quoted um, unnamed individuals on the National Security Council, Kissinger's staff. Uh, so it wouldn't have taken a genius to figure out where this came from. All Nixon knew was he was annoyed by the story, which was... Uh, mainly about how foreign policy was being made more in the White House than in the State Department. How did you... And I'm sure, I'm sure that, that William Rogers was not very happy either. I always thought it would be interesting to be a reporter and watch people deny that they talked to you, and you know they did. Yes. <laughs> then they deny to their boss, like a Richard Nixon, that they talked to you, and they did. Uh, how often right. in your life did you come across that just sitting there saying the public has no idea how this is working? Well, more than once, that's for sure. Uh, it does happen, but you don't usually get a record, a tape recording <laughs> of the principals discussing it and denying it uh, on the record, thanks to the uh, Watergate committee and the revelations of the tapes. Uh, you don't usually get that, but uh, it certainly has happened before and um, and uh, not unique to me either. I have to say one of the things that really got my attention in this short, it's a short chapter, but it's full of a lot of stuff. This whole, when Kissinger wanted to protest the article and he ends up with you in the office of the bureau chief of the New York Times, Max Frankel, how does that conversation start up, and what was the impact on you when they started? Well, well I'll tell. I, 
yes, I I can tell you. Uh, it was another article, not the same one that I had written, but about the uh, foreign policy, and and uh, Kissinger was not happy with it. And he called me. Uh, no, I'm sorry. First, he called Max Frankel, then the bureau chief, Washington bureau chief for the New York Times, and someone he knew quite well. And he called to complain, and he uh, told Max that uh, he wanted Max to come over to the White House so they could discuss it in person in Kissinger's office. And Max, to his credit, said, well, I'll come, but I'm going to bring the author of the story, Terrence Smith, and he's going to come with me, and we're going to, the three of us are going to talk about it. So we go over to uh, the White House, uh, where I was every day in that era and uh, go into Kissinger's big sunny corner office on the um, northwest corner of the of the West Wing. And uh, we start to talk and Kissinger is insisting that uh, this the depiction of him in the story was is and his policies was not accurate. And uh, we talk about it back and forth. And at one point, uh, and then neither side is really giving much ground, but, you know, Kissinger's having his say. And uh, I'm responding where, where necessary. And so, and so we realize we've, we've talked it out. And he turns to Max Frankel, who, like Kissinger, was born and raised in Germany and German native tongue of both of them. And so he starts talking German to Max on another topic, but of equally sensitive one. And he's discussing his point in German. And I had to speak up and say, gentlemen, gentlemen, back to English, please. <laughs> um, and they sort of reluctantly went back to it. Uh, and uh, I think Max Frankel was embarrassed by the whole thing. And uh, Kissinger went back to English and made his point in English. But as soon as, and we seemed to be wrapping up the meeting, and as soon as I stood up to leave, he, said, he asked Max in German to stay behind and talk, and they talk about whatever they talked about in German. One last thing on this chapter. Did you actually report about the trip to uh, Nixon's trip to China before anybody else knew about it? Well, yes, but it was speculative. I talked about uh, his uh, Nixon's efforts to uh, uh, open relations, full relations with and go to China. And I uh, talked about the fact that the secret emissary who'd gone to Pakistan to negotiate all this was Henry Kissinger, and that Nixon himself was likely to go within the next several months. And so it wasn't so much a, a report as it was a prediction that, that this was the logical consequence of what they were trying to do. You didn't hear the introduction, and it was brief, but I, I quoted you in the introduction. I want to get your reaction to this. Um, Mm-hmm. There is a great. This is these are your words um, in the book. There is a great deal of hand wringing these days about the news business. Young people don't read, 
don't know anything beyond what they see on their screens and don't see the value of independent knowledge as long as they have Google and can look it up. Um, the sky, we are told, is falling. What's your reaction to that statement, and is it falling? It may be falling, but it hasn't fallen. And uh, I, I end up in that passage and, and in life hopeful that uh, all the technological evolution, which has changed a great deal in uh, journalism generally, and you could say more broadly in life, um, that we will that certain basic principles about fairness and honesty uh, continue to be vital in many uh, news organizations and are central. And I believe that, and I believe it's still true. Uh, I believe that. Journalism is evolving, but as I wrote uh, in there, I think, um, you know, it uh, is changing, but not universally uh, for the worse. And uh, as as opportunities close, op- opportunities open. So I'm, I, I'm more hopeful than than uh, that passage might suggest. I don't know that this is the strongest, but certainly it feels like it's the strongest statement you made in your book, and I want you to um, talk more about it. Um, You're talking about Iraq, and you say it was a huge, misguided, corrupt, and deceitful foreign policy catastrophe, the worst since Vietnam, built on lies and distorted intelligence, an absurd neoconservative notion that the United States, by force of arms, could ignite a democratic revolution that would spread throughout the Middle East. Most of your book doesn't have a great deal of opinion on it, and but why did you feel so strongly in the need to make that uh, statement? Well, I do feel strongly that uh, invading uh, Iraq, the war in Iraq, was a colossal blunder on our uh, part, on the United States' part, and that... Uh, we seem to learn nothing from our military exercises overseas that have since Vietnam been almost uniformly failures. And if you're looking at Vietnam, you're looking at uh, Iraq and, and 20 years in Afghanistan, we don't seem to learn. And it was a point I felt I had to make. Uh, it, um, it, the case in Iraq was especially glaring in that uh, uh, Vice President Cheney and others uh, genuinely misled the public, and I think they may have misled themselves and and President George W. Bush, and to launch uh, an invasion that, uh, that was certain to work, but they had absolutely no plan of what to do when they deposed uh, Saddam Hussein. And it, it, uh, it, it's immensely frustrating. And there's an added dimension, Brian, that is uh, the role of the press. I think it was a failure for uh, news organizations as well. I think it became the accepted 
wisdom that that the war was going to happen, that uh, the Bush administration seemed determined to pursue it and um, for its own rationale, and that it was going to happen. And so news organizations switched from covering the debate over whether there should be a war to how they were going to cover a war. And I guess that's uh, ordinary and human and, uh, you know, perhaps understandable in in the wake of the um, of 9-11. And yet it was uh, a colossal blunder on both sides, both the administration and uh, news organizations that uh, took it took it as a fait accompli that it was going to happen and that uh, uh, th- their concern had to be how were they going to cover it. And I think that was a big mistake. And uh, I think uh, news organizations deluded themselves over the years on Afghanistan as well. Uh, as one general after another would say, well, we just have to redouble our efforts and redouble our troops and we'll get there. Well, that was never going to happen. And uh, so uh, my hope is that uh, not only will the nation learn and future administrations learn, uh, but that uh, news organizations will learn to be uh, critical and uh, to dig deep into the rationale and, and, and justifications of any future military adventures overseas. Terry Smith, where do you live today? I live in Annapolis, Maryland. I live overlooking the water uh, uh, in this lovely town. I'm a lifelong sailor. I keep a sailboat here. And uh, uh, on a lovely day like this, I, uh, I intend to be out on the water. Where were you born? I was born in Philadelphia, Bryn Mawr Hospital, and uh, my father, Red Smith, was uh, then a sports columnist for the Philadelphia Record, uh, He one of five newspapers he worked for in four different cities uh, over the years. He claimed he killed all of them, but it wasn't quite true, because the last was the New York Times, where he won his Pulitzer. But anyway, he was writing for the uh, Philadelphia Record, which is gone. And uh, we, so I was born in Philadelphia. We moved to New York when I was seven, first Long Island, then Connecticut, um, living in the suburbs as my father worked for the New York Herald Tribune. And um, uh, I later joined him there. There were five Smith males. Uh, working in uh, New York City newspapers at the same time. And so, uh, and along came uh, a sixth, uh, uh, a cousin, uh, Georgia, who proved to be probably one of the outstanding feature writers on the New York Times later. Anyway, it, um, I grew up there and went to Notre Dame, as you mentioned, and, um, and then was... Um, I worked for the Stanford, Connecticut Advocate, and then moved into New York. I was in the Army, 
and I uh, those were the days of the draft, and um, I came out of the army and went uh, down to Manhattan, be a big city reporter, what I'd always wanted to be. And I started at the Herald Tribune and moved to the Times. And I was there for 20 years. I found a um, interview with your father from 1970. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it, Jerome Holtzman's interview. I want to run a short clip and, and get you to talk a little bit more about him and his influence on you. Mm-hmm. I go more and more convinced that, uh, that there's room for improvement in this world. I, maybe as I grow older, I find this not a, a much less pretty world than I thought it was when I was younger. And I feel things should be done about it, and, and sports are a part of this world. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is so, or maybe I'm sounding too damn profound. Uh, uh, maybe I'm, 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 I'm taking bows where I shouldn't. I truly don't know, but I do feel that I have grown more liberal. I find my sympathies are almost always on the side of the underdog or the guy I think is the underdog. What do you think is... Uh, <laughs> how he would feel about sports today and also just about the world we live in. Well, I think he'd be distressed about the world. uh, And it's a a constant thought that occurs to me. What would he think of the uh, money that is played, uh, that is paid, excuse me, to ballplayers these days? Um, Just recently, the, uh, uh, Washington Nationals offered Juan Soto, the great hitter, uh, a $444 million contract over 10 or 12 years. And he turned it down. It wasn't enough. <laughs> and so uh, my father always uh, spoke up for the players over the owners or the management and thought their salaries were justified by the fact that they drew people into the ballpark and uh, helped the bottom line and uh, should be paid for their performance and their abilities. And I guess he would still think that now, but the money is just so different now and so huge that I do wonder at times uh, what what he might would think about it. Uh, I don't think it would change his fundamental attitude that he was talking about there of, of speaking up for the underdog. But uh, $444 million, is that an underdog? I don't know. How would you define journalism? Journalism is the art, if you like, or uh, the craft of conveying to the public, readers or viewers, what is going on in the world about them that they should know or want to know, and in some cases need to know, in order to function properly. And you can't be totally objective. None of us is. We're not objective. We have opinions. We have views. But you can be fair and you can be accurate. 
and if you accomplish that, then you've done you've done a service. You commented, and I don't have the full quote um, about you reading in the New York Times. Uh, reporters, not commentators or columnists, calling out Donald Trump for lying. And yes. during this last five, six years, journalists many, many times use the word lie. What's your reaction to that? I was very uh, hesitant about it at the beginning. Uh, now, I will, reckon, I will readily admit that Donald Trump sets a new standard in lying, and that uh, really, in his case, there is no other word for it. But lie to me, in a headline in the New York Times or wherever, uh, to say, to use the word lie suggests a certain motive and malice of forethought that uh, you better be pretty sure about uh, when you say that about someone, that they are lying. Uh, and and so I did have uh, some reluctance about that, some discomfort with it. But now, uh, you know, after these years, these Trump years, uh, I, I totally agree. There's no there's no point in dodging it. Uh, it's simply calling it as it is. What does it say to you that Fox News is probably, I haven't done the complete workup on this, the most successful, financially successful TV slice newspaper organization in the country? Well, it is a, a very central commentary on the division in this country and um, how the center not, doesn't hold. You bet it doesn't hold. It has drifted uh, some to the left and some to the far right. And Fox News has exploited that. And uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, did, I think it reflects his personal conservatism and right-wing views. But believe me, if he thought there was more money in um, espousing a liberal point of view, he'd do that. I believe it's very much where the money is. And yet, uh, the the point that you make, that it's uh, financially hugely successful, uh, tells you that there is an audience out there that wants to hear this, that believes it, that already thinks it, uh, and likes to hear the news presented in its framework, so uh, by its preconceived notions. And you can say, well, that's, isn't that true on the left for MSNBC or something? Yes, but not nearly as flagrantly. And um, its um, opinion has crept into so much in so many areas of journalism that now it's it's largely up to the reader or the or the viewer to sort out what he or she thinks and what is true and what is not true and it's a burden it's a burden on the viewer or reader that uh, previously would have been uh, a, a gatekeeping function that would have been performed by editors but now you, in the world of social media, you have to figure a great deal of it out yourself. 
I don't think it's impossible to do. Common sense will answer most of your considerations, but uh, it, it is certainly different than it used to be. Another quote from you, um, strong, direct. Tucker Carlson is a widely known manipulator of hapless Fox viewers and Trump supporters who can't seem to separate fact from fiction uh, and doesn't try. I stand by that. I believe that Tucker, who I knew when he was a young man, his father, Richard Carlson, was the uh, uh, head of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting when I was on uh, the PBS NewsHour. Tucker used to come around the newsroom in his bow tie. Um, I find it amazing that he has uh, risen to the uh, to the impact that he apparently does on uh, people on the right right side of the of opinion. And um, I use the word manipulator consciously and purposefully. Because uh, that's what he is. Uh, he's not alone. Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, they're manipulators of opinion, telling people what they want to hear. And uh, that's not journalism in my, uh, in my uh, book. One more from that, uh, that subject. Uh, you say Carlson twisted ideas. Uh, three million feckless souls tune in most nights and actually believe his nonsense. Why do you think they do if uh, it is nonsense? Because they want to hear it, Brian. They want to hear uh, the nonsense that uh, supports their view of the world that says uh, they're right in thinking that... Uh, American society is changing for the worse, and that, um, and that there is a uh, a sort of replacement of the traditional, um, largely white uh, Protestant establishment that was the majority in this country and is no longer. And I think that replacement fear, more than theory. That replacement fear is uh, is a motivator and a key to uh, some of uh, some of Fox's success and some of the manipulation I'm talking about. One last subject, and we'll let you go. Why were you called the Bug Man? <laughs> well, that that was uh, a label put on me after I managed to uh, inadvertently get a scoop uh, way back in 1965 when uh, Republicans in New York, led by Nelson Rockefeller, the governor, a uh, big power then in Republican politics, uh, decided that they wanted to run John Lindsay as uh, candidate for mayor of New York uh, there hadn't been a, a Republican mayor in New York in, in several decades since LaGuardia, I guess. And uh, yet John Lindsay, then a congressman, was an attractive possibility. And they had a, a uh, supposedly closed meeting in the, um, in the Roosevelt Hotel in a, in a 
conference room with uh, those sort of assembled portable doors in between, and I happened to be in the next one, just killing time, waiting for them to come out, and I could hear what they were talking about and and, uh, put it in the paper. And the uh, very flamboyant head of the New York uh, Republican Party, uh, Vince Albano, uh, Vince was convinced that I had bugged the room. I had not bugged the room. I merely could hear it through those temporary walls and took a lot of notes and put it in the paper. And uh, so when he saw me next at an event, he said, ah, the bug man, here comes the bug man. <laughs> and he came up to me and he said, now tell me, be, be honest, you bugged it, right? And I said, no. No, I didn't, Vince. I'm being honest. I'm telling you the truth. I didn't bug it. Well, how could you get all those quotes, word for word, in a closed meeting? I said, well, all I'm telling you, Vince, is I didn't bug it. But he called me the bug man. The name of the book is Four Wars, Five Presidents, A Reporter's Journey from Jerusalem to Saigon to the White House. Our guest has been Terrence Smith, spent years with the New York Times, CBS, the PBS NewsHour. And I think you can st- you're still doing some writing somewhere, aren't you? I am indeed. Uh, like everyone else, I've got a blog and uh, I'm uh, writing and speaking uh, uh, as long as I save a little time for sailing and golf. Mr. Smith, thank you for your time. Brian, an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.